the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, is it okay that the Chicago mayor is only granting one-on-one interviews to black or brown journalists? And what can we learn from the life of Billy Graham? We're going to have that discussion with author Dr. William Martin. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Hope you're having a wonderful day. 80 degrees. Nobody can can be complaining. So it's just good to have you with us today. Something out of the city of Chicago right here in our backyard. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, as she approaches the two-year anniversary of her inauguration, so she's midway, halfway point through her first term, uh, she's taken um, a controversial step, I would say, as she told the city's media outlets uh, that she would grant one-on-one interviews to mark the occasion, but only under one condition that she would only speak with journalists of color. And so uh, what what she went on to say is that there's not enough. Uh, she's looking to break up the status quo yeah. of City Hall uh, and that the press corps is overwhelmingly white in right. the city. Uh, where more of the half of the city identifies as black, Latino, Native American. And so she said, in order to break up the status quo, uh, I'm only going to grant these interviews uh, to basically non-white um, journalists. Uh, journalists. Yeah. Uh, Mary Ann Ahern tweeted about this. She's a journalist and others. Uh, yeah, I'm going to I have thoughts on this, but I would love to know when you first read this and you first heard this. Do you are you like, well, that's a that's a boldly um, uh, impressive move or problematic? What were your thoughts when you first heard about what uh, Mayor Lightfoot was doing? I, I, I'm curious if you and I have different perspectives on this or not. I think it's a wonderful move. I think it is time to correct the imbalance of journalism in Chicago. I think this is a moment. I mean, it's literally it's one event that she's she's allowing other voices, minority voices that haven't always had the precedence to have precedence. There's been an imbalance. This is one way to sort of counteract that imbalance again for an event. It's one event. It's not like from now on forever. This is what she's doing. She's saying for this anniversary, I'm going to do this. I think it's a bold move, a good move. I am all for it. Yeah, you and I are going to disagree on this one. <laughs> uh, that's good. No, that's good, Brian, because we agree too much probably. So let's we hear your do. perspective. We do. I just think that this is uh, mm, – this feels reversely racist to me. Mm, I totally the, disagree with that, but let's hear why you think so. The same way – I get it that you're saying that, they're, that, that since there are majority white, therefore you've got to take the move. Uh, A, you could just say I'm going to – uh, highlight the good work of our of our minority journalists, but but my view on this would be, uh, I don't think you combat racism by 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 making um by by doing things that say now I'm going to cut out this group of people and I'm mm-hmm. going to cut out this group of people and I'm going to now now I'm going to do it this way. 
there's other ways to go about it. Let's work with our, you know, let's try to get to the issue as to why are most of the city hall journalists white? Right. Let's let's get at that problem. To me, this feels like a, uh, um, you know, this feels, yeah, I don't know how else to put it. This feels progressively racist to me. And I don't think that's the answer to go. If we just now cut out this, it's, it's kind of the way that colleges attack things sometimes or, you know, putting quotas on things. It just feels um, backwards to me, even though it kind of masks itself as this progressive good thing. To me, I it think feels why, backwards. I think why it doesn't feel backwards to me is because it's not forever. She's not saying I am doing this from now on. She's saying for this one event, I'm going to raise up voices that haven't been raised up. And I, I just I sort of can relate to it as a woman. Like sometimes you see only men speaking at events, only men publishing books only. And so there has to be some intentionality to say, I'm going to take a moment and raise up voices that have not had the opportunity or else it's never going to change. And the reason I don't think it's like adverse racism is because we're talking about, I I mean, there's been a whole system built on allowing, like you said, the white people to have the primary voice in journalism. And listen, I'm a white person saying this, so I hear myself, but there's not a whole system changing. She's not saying I will never have white journalists ever again. That would be certainly racism. She's saying for this moment in time, I'm going to allow other voices to be raised up. And I think we have to see that happen or the, the power imbalance will never, never change. But I like that you and I are disagreeing because I think that's a good conversation. So what would you think if she said, I'm going to do this for a month? Or I'm going to do this for three months because we need some consistency here or we need, you know, some longevity. I I think I'd still be okay with it. But this is probably where you and I disagree because I, again, it's been years and years and years. And all we're saying is for a few months, we're going to allow minority voices to have the majority. Yeah, I just don't think it needs to be all or nothing. So here's here. Let me see what you think about this. Gregory Pratt. Gregory Pratt, he is a Latino reporter with the Chicago Tribune. His interview request was granted, and he tweeted this. However, I asked the mayor's office to lift its condition on others, and when they said no, we respectfully canceled. And Mm. here's his quote, politicians don't get to choose who covers them. What do you think about what Gregory Pratt had to say there? Sure. I I still think this is a moment in time, and I think it's a good move to try to change the imbalance. Mm. All right, you and I. I think this is probably the, I had a feeling this was going to happen. I think this is the story we're going to most disagree on. I like this, though. This is good. We need this kind of banter on the common Cause, good. Because I'm not a, as positive as you see this is as negative as I see. Yeah. I see this as yeah. a terrible decision with a slippery slope that could go into all sorts of bad places. I see this as a wonderful decision with a slip going up uphill. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are off and running on a Tuesday. That felt good. I felt good to disagree. Look, wait, wait. We disagree and we still respect each other, Brian. I respect you and your opinion. Yeah, we're going to see how the top five list goes tomorrow. Brian, you're supposed to say it back to me. Aubrey, I respect you and your opinion. I do. I do. Okay, I, 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 I do very much. Here's what we want you to do. <laughs> Go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're going to put this story up and, and let us know what you think. Uh, good move, bad move. Where do you fall on uh, Mayor Lightfoot's decision here? Well, coming up next, uh, the author of a book called A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story. His name is Dr. William Martin. We're going to have a conversation with him about what can we learn from the life of Billy Graham? What does it speak to even into our day right now? We're going to do that with Dr. William Martin next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined by the Senior Fellow in Religion and Public Policy at Rice University's Baker Institute. His name is Dr. William Martin. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well. Good to be with you. Absolutely. We're, we're excited to talk to Bill about his book, A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story. But Bill, before we do that, could you just introduce yourself however you'd like to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Yes. Uh, I'm in my 54th year at Rice. Wow. I've taught, so, taught sociology, mainly sociology, religion, and the other courses, criminology as well, mm-hmm. for 38 years. And uh, then I've been at the Baker Institute for Public Policy which is ranked very high in the the United States now. So we sometimes say, we see these rankings and say, really, this us? (laughs) (laughs) That feels good. But but, uh, so I direct that program in religion and public policy. And uh, I'm in my... 84th year, but I'm still in, in good health. And uh, thank God for that. Yes, that's right. Thank God for that. Well, we're so glad to have you with us. We want to talk about your book, A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story. And we've been watching the PBS American Experience documentary on Billy Graham, which has been so fascinating. I would just love to hear from you. What are some stories that might surprise people about Billy Graham? Oh, my. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I think that is uh interesting about him is that there there's not a dark side. Mm. Uh, I heard people that um, when I was uh, doing the research, and I spent five and a half years on this book, people would say that, you know, he's hobnob with the famous, the wealthy, but he always seemed surprised that people were interested in him. Mm. He was genuinely humble, but also mixed with great ambition. And that came out a little bit in the show. Uh, there's a genuine tension there. But um, I think that he was a person of integrity. And people said, you know, it's not that he's never made any false steps, but you split him all the way down and you see the same person. Mm, yeah. Love that. Yeah. Ru- Russ, his photographer, Russ Busby, who chronicled him, is with him almost more than any other person for decades, said, it takes a big ego to be a big preacher. Mm-hmm. It really keeps it under control. If wow. it gets out of control, it lasts only briefly. I'm not talking about months. I'm talking about a day or two. Wow. And that's it. The big difference between Billy Graham and these other preachers is that if God has something to say to him, at least he can get his attention. Ah, wow. That's, really that's great. That's, that's great. great. Uh, I'd love to go back, Bill, to kind of the beginning, because people know the story of Billy Graham, if they're around the church, of his crusades and all this stuff. But I'd love to go back to the very beginning of uh, how did he even come to faith? Uh, when you know Who led him to Jesus? How did he come to faith? Well, he came to faith at home. He was he was reared in a strong uh, Reformed Presbyterian church family, and they had to learn the the junior catechism early. They had to learn a Bible verse before they could go out to play in the morning. So church was always a strong part of his life. Mm. Uh, And then where he really where he made a personal commitment Mm. uh, that was at a revival by a great evangelist Mordecai Ham. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, and his father had played a role in getting that revival to come to town. And uh, Billy was uh, a little reluctant about it. He thought it was too too showy. <laughs> and uh, But uh, he finally was persuaded to go with some other friend of his father's, took a truckload of them, of young people. 
And he was there, and he was really, uh, he was kind of terrified at first. He said the preacher would talk about the sinful young people and pointed figures, thought he was pointing right at him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so finally he joined the choir so that he would be behind the preacher, even though even though he said then, and it remained true, it, it, he, he couldn't sing a lick. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But uh, he, he did finally, when he came home, he said to his parents, he said, I, I didn't feel what some people talk about, but I know I'm a changed boy. Mm. And so he decided then it, it was never he, he he never had that kind of uh, not a not a born again moment. I mean, right. he, he never had the kind of moment where he said, wham, this I was this person. and Now I'm a new person. I've changed. But uh, it was a uh, th- there were moments there that that was that was signal to him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Bill, you know, we're we're seeing in the news, unfortunately, a lot. We've actually talked about this on the show. Some of these leaders in churches, uh, high profile folks that just seem to lack integrity. And what you said earlier about Billy Graham, that he seemed to be the same man through and through. What lessons can the church learn today from the life of Billy Graham? I think one is that he was he, he truly was humble. I mean, he would say, Oh, I wish I didn't see my name up in lights. On the other mm. hand, he did have an organization that kept them up in lights. <laughs> uh, yes. he, he, he said to me, uh, I, I, many in his organization, people called him Dr. Graham. So I did that. And he said, don't call me doctor. He said, you have an earned doctorate. I just, mm. They just give them to me mainly when they want me to speak at commencement. Mm. But he said, so I don't even list them. But if, if Harvard or Yale or Princeton were to give me one, and his voice just sort of trailed <laughs> off. <you know? laughs> but uh, but he, he, he had a humility about certainty. He said even, you know, in his, certainly in his late 70s, he says, I am still a man in progress. Hmm. And from the beginning when he broke with the hardcore fundamentalists early in the, in the 40s and then certainly in 1954 with his crusade in New York when he accepted the invitation from the Protestant Council of Churches which was associated with the World Council of Churches, which many people thought was associated with Satan. <laughs> oh, wow. That, uh, and then he, 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 so he was inviting and cooperating with other Protestants and then Catholics. He learned from other cultures. He, be, he came to see that capitalism was not the only system in which Christianity can flourish and Christians mm-hmm. can, can live. He was always widening the circles rather than drawing them in and saying, everyone outside Cave 73 is going to hell. Wow. <laughs> wow. Bill, I wonder, uh, we all heard the stories or even been to Billy Graham Crusades, and it's always amazing to me that that he was such an effective preacher. Uh, what do you believe made Billy Graham such an effective preacher? Obviously, the Holy Spirit used his words to just convict and do amazing things, but what made Billy Graham... Uh, kind of the preacher's preacher. You know, I don't think he, he knew that himself. He, mm-hmm. he wondered about that. Um, and he did, of course, he give, give credit to the Holy Spirit. Um, one of his friends, Charles Templeton, who was early during Youth for Christ, was a great preacher. He said, everybody knew I could preach better than Billy. <laughs> but when I'd give the invitation, I'd get 13 people, and the next night he'd get 31. Wow. Or I'd, get, I'd get 60, and he would get 90. And said, and so he said, Billy somehow had the gift of the invitation. Hmm. And mm-hmm. an, another another preacher said to me that I think one of the 
one of the things, not necessarily the difference between other preachers, but one of the things that was clear about Billy Graham is he is himself a believer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he, he believed so strongly and people knew it. And there was no, there was no hypocrisy. Yes. Uh, that all those things were a, a lesson to others. And they said, if this man believes it, then I think I will believe that too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And of Absolutely. course, that, that's one of the things that made him uh, help with his political impact. He was always pleased and surprised that the presidents liked him. But he was, <laughs> he was giving as well as he got there because people saw if this man is a friend of Billy Graham's, then he must be a good man and perhaps even a Christian man, and his policies must be possibly Christian policies, mm. so that this is something that I can support. Core integrity was something that uh, I think was distinctive about him, not not unique, but distinctive. Yeah. And for a man of that, that influence and power, it was tr- tremendously important. Gosh, so much for the church and all of us to learn from that today, for sure. And we're going to have that conversation. Uh, Dr. William Martin, author of the book, A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham Story. He was also featured in the recent PBS American Experience documentary called Billy Graham, Prayer, Politics, Power. And Bill, so grateful to have you staying with us. You spent time alone or, or personally with Billy Graham. What effect did that have on your life, having just that close kind of interpersonal relationship with him, whether it be at his home or traveling with him? Well, of course, I was, it was, I was very much interested in that and, and thought it was a great privilege. But at the same time, he always acted like what a, what a joy it was for, for him to have me with him. So, and, uh, but interestingly, the moment that stands out most for me, I think, was a poignant one. And doing my interviews with him, which I typically I would read and go through things and look at films and all of that and spend two or three days asking questions. But I saved the relationships with the president to last because I knew that would be touchy and difficult. Yeah. And there were some people in the organization who thought I should not have included that material. But, of course, there was no choice about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We talked about Nixon, particularly, and Watergate and how he had been misled and I'd found memos, talking points, and other things in Nixon's archives that he was not aware existed. Hmm. And what they were saying is, we got to work on Billy Graham. Here's how we're using Billy Graham. Charles Colson said, well, of course we used him. That's what we did with people. Hmm. But after I'd talked to him, done all those interviews, and sent him even the, the what I'd written, he said he put his arms back on the couch. He said, I couldn't believe some of those memos that you showed me until I saw it. Mm. I knew what I'd said to the president. I knew what he'd said to me. But when I read all those memos that had been circulating in the background, I felt like a sheep led to the slaughter. Mm. It was, but in, it was, he'd, it had pained him deeply. But instead of denying it, he was absorbing the force of it. And I don't have a moment that sticks with me any more clearly than that one. That's oh, so powerful, Bill. Do you think because of that, uh, Mr. Graham had any regrets about getting in so involved politically? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And he re- he declined uh, to get involved uh, with the with with Jerry Falwell and, uh, you know, the with what you call the Christian right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've also written a, a book about mm-hmm. that. Wow. But, uh, but uh, and then uh, he he resisted uh, getting later. He just said, I, I if I look back and see what I regret in my life. It's getting too involved in politics. Wow. And I think that is 
now I think that uh, there is a real threat to the church, to Christianity, mm-hmm. when people are using religion in the service of politics mm-hmm. as a way yes. as a way to draw political lines and say, if you don't, if you if you're part of my religion, you can't be for that that person who's that's running right. for office. Mm-hmm. You can't hold those positions, mm-hmm. and that's very bad. But Billy Graham was always widening circles, as I said, and the church, the country, the world is better for that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Bill, this uh, this might be a hard question to answer. Do you think what would if Billy Graham came along today in kind of this culture, as opposed to when he was you know, doing ministry, how would it look different? Do you even think Billy Graham could have done ministry in our setting today of social media and political division and everything? What do you think that would have looked like? One of the things I think I can say is that he would have embraced the social, the, 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 as he always did, mm. all through his through his life, from you know from putting up big signs that said "Come see the one of America's great evangelists" when he was twenty one and not yet one of America's greatest evangelists. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and they, see, they said he made he made uh, two thousand handbills to pass out when there was only about 600 people in the town. So, oh, wow. But so he was always, and he used, he used radio, he used television, mm. yeah. he used, uh, so that he was able to preach to the whole world. The whole world could have heard him at one time when, mm. from, from, and the, and the, the, the instant, the organization since that, the association since that has continued to use. So I think Billy Graham would have embraced every new kind of technique, and he would have figured out with the help of others how to use it effectively. Mm, that's amazing. Bill, I, when I think about Billy Graham, I, of course, always think about Ruth and his family. And I would love to hear how did you know he gain support and strength from Ruth? What was their relationship like? Mm-hmm. It was, it was uh, as I said on the program, was quoted, and I was glad they used that word. I said that when she surrendered her commitment to be a foreign missionary, no one thought that knew Ruth Graham thought she had surrendered her will. Hmm. She, was, <laughs> she, she was a strong woman. And uh, she, he was talking once, I was, he was saying something about her, that she wasn't feeling that well that morning. And she just walked in and says, boring. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so people in the organization who've known him a lot longer than I did said, there would have been no Billy Graham without Ruth. Mm. And I think summing her up is where it's at, at the end. She did not want to be buried at the Billy Graham Center. Oh. She she did not want it to be a place where come you know people would come. There there was another place by the Billy Graham Center in near Asheville. I forget its name right now, but uh, that uh, there were, were going to be buried there. But Franklin wanted to be there. But anyway, her gravestone says, "End of construction. Thank <laughs> you for your patience." <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and that's that that I think she summed herself up very well there. And she was a great reader, a, a, an excellent poet. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, she held Billy, you know, when early when he was doing much more dramatic preaching in the early years. She said, I don't think people came to see you act. Just preach. Wow. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow. Bill, as we, this has been such a joy. We told you mm-hmm. off air, Aubrey and I are both Wheaton College grads and did most of our work at the Billy Graham Center. So uh, gotten to see a lot of Billy Graham. Uh, you've touched on this already. As we close, uh, what can the church today, what can pastors today, leaders today, and the church of today 
maybe I'll put it this way. What would Billy Graham say to the church of today? Uh, what, what would be his kind of uh, admonition and his encouragement to the church and to leaders that are that are serving right now? I think he would certainly say, don't be too narrow. Hmm. Don't shut out other people. Hmm. Be humble about what gifts you have been given and preach the word. Yeah. Amen. Dr. William Martin is a senior fellow in religion and public policy at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. The author of the book that we've been talking about here, A Prophet with Honor, The Billy Graham Story. And he was also featured. If you haven't seen it, go look it up and go see it. The PBS American Experience documentary that was just playing called Billy Graham Prayer Politics power. Uh, Dr. Martin, this was so fun for us and hopefully you enjoyed it as well. But thanks so much for joining yeah, us and talking you. to us about Billy Graham. Well, I did. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, we just talked about Billy Graham, and we are going to move in what feels like the opposite church Right, that's what I was thinking. Here. This feels opposite, right? Because <laughs> there was a really interesting interview on the Today Show. I think it was yesterday, and, and just in, interesting in the sense that he even is doing an interview on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was Brian Houston. Brian Houston, if you're in the church world, you probably know that name. He is the founder of Hillsong. So this kind of worldwide church network, you could call it a denomination, really, at this definitely, point. Definitely, definitely. Brian Houston started Hillsong uh, over in Australia. And Hillsong has been in the news. It's always in the news, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it is because it's such a big behemoth. But a lot of their worship, uh, their worship services, their worship concerts, they, they have concert feels. Lots of their church services have concert feels. Uh, and they have a very... Uh, specific ethos, if you will, to who mm-hmm. their church is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and much of his interview, and I'm going to want to listen to a little bit of his interview with Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show. A lot of his interview had to do not just with all that's going on with Hillsong Worldwide. They've had a lot of problems over the last year. Uh, but their problems, oft, uh, especially over over here in America, have centered on Hillsong, New York and Carl Lentz. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl Lentz stepped down he, or he was fired last year in part because of, quote, moral failures. He was the lead pastor of Hillsong, New York, which uh, gained much pro- notoriety because they had people going. A lot of celebrities. A lot of celebrities. There. There. Justin, Justin Bieber, Bieber, Chris Pratt, right. Catherine Schwarzenegger, the Kardashians were That's part right. of his church. Yeah. That's right. And so we're going to talk about that aspect of it here in a second. But I want you to hear what Brian Houston had to say to Savannah Guthrie. It's been difficult, clearly, because a lot of disappointment in some of the things that have emerged. Look, Carl was Carl. He's a unique character. There's a lot of things I miss about Carl. But having said that, there were leadership issues that I believe included lying, included what I would call narcissistic behavior. Should you have known earlier? Should you have done something earlier about the leadership of Hillsong? I think there's a lot of things I should have known earlier. And hopefully moving forward, we'll make sure we have far better systems in place and better accountability. All right, Aubrey, there there feels like there's a bit of a reckoning going on, hopefully, with kind of uh, some of the stuff about Hillsong. But but. 
not only when you hear what he said, but but just all that you've seen going on with Hillsong this year, kind of what 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 are some things that come to mind for you? What are some concerns that maybe get raised? I mean, here's I have I have friends who are deeply embedded in Hillsong. That's and right. so I, I want to be mindful of the fact that this is a faithful church. The Houstons are faithful followers of God. What a lot of people don't know is a lot of their folks have planted churches literally around the globe. It's amazing. That are not even under the Hillsong name. Like there are small faithful churches in Greece, um, in other parts of the world where, you know, you'd never hear about them. They're not reaching celebrities, but they are faithfully following Jesus. Let's just say God has allowed Hillsong to have major influence around the world. Okay. So I want to honor that. But <laughs> we look at a situation like Carl Lenz and um, what we see is this pattern that I feel like we keep seeing, which is where these sort of narcissistic leaders um, that are charismatic and charming and very, very gifted are allowed to get away with a lot. And I appreciate, I think I told you this a few weeks ago, I appreciate that he was fired almost immediately. And some of their other pastors since have been fired almost immediately. But then it is a little heartbreaking, not a little heartbreaking, it's very heartbreaking to hear that there were hints of this. And this mm-hmm. is what I think we keep hearing, right? Not just at Hillsong, but these other sort of stories yes. of, of these corrupted leaders that people knew all along. There were mm-hmm. flags, there were checks, there were stories all along but for whatever reason, I think this is what we have to figure out. Why were those things not called into question? Accountability. Why was something not done earlier? And I, you know, I, from an outside perspective, it, it can be easy to be like, well, you just get in there and you address it. But I know that there are <laughs> lots of there's relationships and, you know, there's lots in place. But I do think it's time to dissect what's going on and, um, allow God to like change the way the church is running. What do you think about all of it? I think you honed in on the really important part here, like taking Carl Lentz, if you will. He was the celebrity pastor of celebrity pastors. If we're honest about it in our country. And the way, the reason I say that is because uh, like you said, you said earlier, there were celebrities just going to the church. It was a show. And I don't mean show in a bad way. I mean, it was a show in New York City that rivaled Broadway for many people. Yes, right. And uh, it was a movement. And like you said, a lot of life change, a lot of good things happened there. Uh, but the the scariest part of and the most damning part of this interview when talking about Carl Lentz is when Brian Houston said Carl was Carl. He's a unique character. There's a lot of things I miss about him, he said. But having said that, there were leadership issues that I believe included lying and narcissistic behavior. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, he says, I had concerns and many conversations over the years. Hmm. And I I should have known earlier. And he goes on to say, and and this gets at, and I think you are right to take the focus off of Hillsong and put it on the church in general here. because, And it's not even the megachurch. I think the megachurch has some unique um uh temptations and some unique aspects because certainly it, you know the the charismatic leader and this and that but this happens in small churches too that's right where we see pastors who preach good sermons or uh who have charismatic personalities uh-huh. or who we really like and who are growing the church right you know after all the stuff happened with james mcdonald a couple years ago we literally read quotes where people were like yeah but the church was growing right and bill hybels when everything happened there yeah mm-hmm. but the church was growing right 
And what that causes us to do is to look past things like character and things like integrity uh, that that happens slowly. It's like the old, uh, you know, the old frog in the boiling water. Thing. Yeah. Like it doesn't happen all at once. It happens slowly and you let one thing go and then another thing go. And then all of a sudden there's the moral failure that you can't ignore because right. it's in public. Right. Uh, and, and I think the lesson that we're, the reckoning, I think, that's happening in the evangelical world, at the very least, because that's where you and I are kind of involved mm-hmm. here, is character, small church, medium church, big church, parachurch, whatever else it might be, character in the leadership must be paramount. Like Absolutely. It's got to matter. Absolutely. And character and, if- and integrity has got to be raised up as a value like it never has before. This is like, I literally feel like this is our like come to Jesus moment as a church, yes. as the evangelical church. If we can't get this and have a history of faithful leaders, and I know we do, of course we have a history of faithful leaders, but if we can't get this right, I, I, our witness is at stake. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's why, you know, it's here's the problem. And it's what we mentioned earlier. It's easy to look past little character issues, right? Ah, you know, he, mm. he, he or she lied a little bit mm. or they did this a little bit. Mm. It's kind of behind closed doors. Uh, but it character issues nine times out of 10 don't turn themselves around. Like that's right, just going right. to keep going. And then also right. you're going to find yourself in this major moment. But we have to think about what is our witness, not only to the people within our church, but outside who are looking, right? Hillsong blew up and that story was on Good Morning America. Uh, it was yes. on the front page of all the New York newspapers. It was, it went worldwide. Uh, there were paparazzi outside Carl Lentz's house. And my guess is if, if you had asked Brian Houston what the result would have been a couple of years ago, he would never have guessed that. Never. And now he's going on, I think the lesson here, and it's not just mega churches, friends. Uh, small church, medium church, mega church, parachurch, everything. Character must, must, must be the number one thing that yeah. that we're kind of holding up in our leaders. And then when we don't see it, we've got to be making the hard decisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's right. And, and and I think it's a moment too. I know we're wrapping up here, but check your own heart. Like even as I'm talking, there are some things in my spirit that I'm like, okay, that's something I need to get right before the Lord. Okay, that's something that needs to change. Like check your own spirit. And ask the Lord to examine you. And like the psalmist says, if there is any way in you that is not pleasing to God, ask him to correct it. Well put. Well put. Uh, well, coming up next, we're, we're going to dive into a difficult topic. And it's this. How are Christian doctors gearing up for the increasing debate around transgenderism and other issues? We're going to have that conversation and what the church could learn from it next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what can we all learn from Christian doctors as they are in the midst of the transgender debates? Uh, And then we're going to discuss Russell Moore's departure, and now he's taking a job at Christianity Today. You are listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad to have you with us today on this Thursday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, One of the uh, emerging conversations that's been growing and it continues to grow within our culture, within the church, uh, is the complexities and um, the frequency of our conversations around transgenderism and the various debates going on there. And Aubrey, what I would say as we kind of dive into this topic is uh, it's a conversation 
that is com- uh, quickly evolving. Like it's almost hard to stay uh, like up, up with- to up to yeah. date. Yeah, I agree. Right, right. To even know what's going on, and mm-hmm. we wanted to start there with just what I found to be. Uh, a really helpful listen. So this is a much longer uh, podcast, but we're just going to play like a, a, you know, a little bit of it. This is Mark Yarhouse. He is a psychology professor at Wheaton College and the director of the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. So this is kind of where his research is. His books include Understanding Gender Dysphoria and most recently Emerging gender identities. Again, he's a psychology professor at Wheaton College. So let's just listen to a brief snippet of this podcast that he did. I think the conversation around gender has become more pronounced, more centered into the cultural discussions. You're seeing an increase in the number of people who identify as transgender or what I refer to as emerging gender identities. And so there's much more of a splintering of gender categories into different experiences, different language for describing people's experiences. I think that has been a shift in the last five years, six years. I think things have become more polarized as well, culturally. You saw that, I think, with the reaction to some of the legislation like the bathroom bill, but you see that now with the law passed in Alabama and something like 20 other states might be considering similar legislation. Now, contrast that with the 20 or more states that have have gender identity change effort laws in place for minors to keep that from happening. I think you're just seeing an increase on both sides of a very divisive topic. So again, Aubrey, I find that helpful just to kind of get our arms around the fact that that this conversation is almost changing not only year to year, but month to month and, right. and in many ways, week to week. Right. It, it's changing so quickly, even yesterday. And th- this is what's funny. So yesterday, uh, pop artist Demi Lovato came mm. out and said that, you know, she's no longer using the pronoun she, but once is non-binary, wants to refer to herself as they. But here's what I don't know. This is why the conversation changes so quickly. Is that, is the gender pronoun conversation a different conversation than <laughs> transgenderism and, and gender dysphoria? You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's complicated. There are yes. layers. And, uh, all that to say, I, I feel like we need to go to the experts like a Mark Yarhouse to help right. us know how to respond. That's right. That's right. And so, uh, our friend Kate Shellnut, she's been on the show a few times. Anyone who's been on the show a few times, we refer to as our friend. She is our friend. She's fabulous. Kate Shellnut wrote at Christianity Today, uh, just a day or two ago. Uh, this is it discrimination or quote, do no harm. Christian doctors gear up, <clears throat> excuse me, for transgender debates. It says as health and human services challenges continue to play out in court, the Christian medical and dental associations provides a more robust position statement on treating patients with gender dysphoria. So here's the, here's the question, right? You're a doctor. And this debate, you know, a lot of us are having this debate in theory, right? Uh, <laughs> right, the, right. The bathroom debates or the uh, high school sports debate or what does this just mean for kids, whatever. And it, that, it's an important debate. It's an important conversation. Uh, but for the doctors right now, for Christian doctors, the the real question is, what do we do? How do we treat? What do we do? And, and so we yeah. don't really read much here, but let me just read just a little bit from this article, because I think it's helpful. It says, as cultural conflicts around transgender identity grow more intense, Christian doctors see a need to be more sensitive to the plights and preferences of people experiencing gender dysphoria while also holding firm 
to personal and professional convictions around biological sex. That's what the Christian Medical and Dental Association say in an updated statement on transgender identification that leaders hope will inform its 20,000 members as well as the general public. That balance might be difficult to maintain, though, if federal health officials take the position that declining certain treatments for transgender patients can be considered a form of discrimination Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. based on sex. And then Kate's article here is going to describe what the Health and Human Services announced about discrimination and anti-discrimination last week and what the Christian Doctors Association uh, is kind of doing. But what do you think of this statement they make here, Aubrey? And what do we learn from it about uh, we want to be sensitive to the plight of those who are struggling with gender dysphoria, with right. questions, right. while at the same time sticking to our Christian convictions and right. biblical convictions. And we want to hold those in tension, yeah. not just in theory, but actually in practice. I feel like, I mean, you just ultimately asked the question that we're all seeking to answer. How do you hold both intention? Because our our biblical values and our biblical understanding of gender identity is important. And I think if we're not careful, we could easily just allow it uh, not to matter. Mm -hmm. And and yet, <laughs> what we also know is that Jesus modeled loving everyone, especially people who seemed unlovable or unlovely. Mm. And, you know, I you take, I guess the bridge would be like the tax collector in the ancient Near East now to the transgender community or the gender dysphoric community. And... <sighs> I think I don't know, Brian. I mean, I think that's, that's what, where I'm going to be honest with you. I want to love really well and I want to understand. I think that's part of it is the things I don't understand instead of going that I don't understand that. Therefore, but instead of getting <laughs> defensive, I want to have a heart that says, this has not been my experience at all. Can you help me understand what you're struggling with? Can you help me understand why this feels important to you? And try to build some of those relational bridges like we talk about here on The Common Good a lot that allow for, I think, us to love, but also to stand firm in who we are in Christ and what we believe theologically and what we believe ethically about gender. Um, But I I think this is going to get increasingly more challenging for Christians to Mm -hmm. learn how to navigate in a godly way. What do you think? Well, because then you also add on top of it, I do think the laws are about to change. Well, that's it, right. Churches, for schools, for businesses. It feels like the medical community, and this is why this article is helpful, the medical community is at the front end of this, right? Yeah, they're kind of leading the way for us in how we should respond, right? Right, right. And I I think it's interesting. It says the position statement that that the medical association wrote says that Christians in healthcare should not, quote, should not initiate hormonal and surgical intervention intended as sex reassignment and takes a stand against doing so through treatments such as alterations to sexual anatomy, uterine transplants, or hormones for children Mm. or adolescents. So they're laying some stakes in the ground here that are important, but at the same time going, we don't need to fight every battle here when it comes to pronouns or this and that. And I think you bring up an interesting point here for, for the church, Aubrey, is like, Ultimately, what is it going to look like to stand our biblical convictions, to stand upon them without being um, unloving? And without exactly. being people, uh, you know, this isn't like, well, and we this- haven't always done this well as the church. Let's 100%, be honest. 
like this isn't the one where we go, well, this is the one where we can, you know, table our Christian ethic of love your neighbor as yourself. Right. But at the same time, when you stand upon your conviction, sometimes that is going to come across as unloving and there's nothing you can really do about that. So I think the church is going to live in this tension here increasingly. Uh, and I, I, the, the thing that I most appreciate about what you said is I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's right. you weren't saying I don't know what I think. I don't know what you know what I believe the Bible. You're saying I don't know how to live in that tension right, right now. Right. But I think the church has to be willing to say we're going to try to live inside that tension rather than just say everything's good, or rather than saying I'm going to fight tooth and yeah. nail here, no matter yeah. what the uh, what the carnage is on the side. Yeah. So I doubt this is the last time we have this conversation. It's a hard one. Yeah, uh, but we as pastors and just as Christians are going to need to wrestle with this. Well, uh, coming up next, there was a huge move in the uh, in the Christian world, in the Christian leader world. Russell Moore leaving his position at the ERLC and moving to a new role at Christianity Today. And I think there's a lot behind this, and it's a really important move. We're going to discuss it next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this beautiful Thursday afternoon, looking like 80 degrees through the weekend. I mean, I don't know. Summer. Summer is here. So uh, we had our two weeks of spring and here we go. So, uh, all right. Uh, at the, uh, something really big hit this week in the Christian kind of Twitter sphere. Is that a word? Evangelical, probably not even Thank Christian you. at large, Thank but you. the evangelical Southern Baptist sphere. Yeah. Southern Baptist sphere. Good. The Twitter universe, the Southern Baptist fear, uh, sphere. That was a Freudian, Freudian. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so Russell Moore, who we've talked about many times on the show and laying my cards on the table, uh, when it comes to not just theologically, but politically, I really kind of line up with somebody like Russell Moore. Yeah, I, I yeah. really find myself to be a conservative like Russell Moore, but he tends to have had big issues with President Trump. Uh, and so the wing of the Republican Party who really backs President Trump has really gone after Russell Moore this year. Right, right. Uh, and uh, and so that's kind of the backdrop to the fact that this week it was announced. Oh, well, Russell Moore, he has been. Uh, He has been leading something called the ERLC, which is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the denomination, the Southern Baptist denomination's kind of political arm. It's kind of their public policy. Uh, And he has taken many, many, many stones this year for his stances on President Trump and other things. Right. And so with now with that as the backdrop, Russell Moore, it was announced this week, is leaving the ERLC to join the staff of Christianity Today. Uh, and he is going to be their public theologian. In his new role, Russell Moore will help launch a public theology project and it will serve at its, as its leader. That project will host events and gatherings about public theology and publish content, including uh, his signposts content. He said, I've struggled with this decision because of my gratitude for the honor of serving the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. As I conclude my time serving the Southern Baptist as the ERC president, I'm filled with gratitude as well as excitement for the future. Uh, I think he's doing this for good reasons, but Aubrey, we can't help but wonder 
if uh, if just the battles he has fought over the last couple of years mm-hmm. with his own denomination uh, aren't a bit of a precursor to this. I haven't uh, really led to this. Listen to Russell Moore in his own words, kind of talking about what's been going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. A Southern Baptist Convention that doesn't have a place for Beth Moore doesn't have a place for a lot of us. All right, you and I not only love Russell Moore, we love Beth Moore. Beth Moore, yes, <laughs> so absolutely. We, we would like more of them on our show. That's we would right. love to have them on our show. But it's hard to get away from the fact, uh, Aubrey, that the largest denomination in uh, evangelicalism seems to be losing a bit of a spot for the Russell Moores and the and Beth, the Beth Moores. Moores. Yeah. And again, Russell Moore went out and not saying any of this. This is you and I psychoanalyzing right. he's being, a little bit. He's being incredibly respectful of the Southern Baptist you know, Convention and the ERLC. So this is us definitely reading into things. But what do you feel about the fact that the largest convention, the largest denomination in the United States seems to have really been going at it with some of their most prominent people, uh, Beth Moore, Russell Moore, and others who specifically have taken on President Trump and a lot of the farther right. I'm not calling it far right. I'll call it farther right uh, politics. What, what do you what do we even make of that? Again, understanding Russell Moore did not say this on his way out. You and I are just trying to connect some dots. Here. We're, we're putting some we're eating some subtext here, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I came to Christ in a Southern Baptist church. And so I've got a soft spot for the SBC, but I certainly, it's been heartbreaking from an outsider to watch the way they have gone after Russell Moore, the way they've gone after Beth Moore, especially, um, especially when I tend to agree, like you said, with their stances about Trump. Yeah. Um, Moore in 2015 called Trump an arrogant huckster, a nasty guy with no heart. I mean, I think even Beth Moore, they were calling out some of the integrity issues, some of the uh, character issues that you and I have talked about that matter in leadership. But for whatever reason, it seems like the Southern Baptist Convention doubled down yeah. on their like Trump stance. And if you're not pro Trump, then you're not pro us. And I, that is so difficult for me to wrap my mind around. Why? Yeah. Why in the world would the Southern Baptist Convention and the ERLC kind of like die on the Trump altar and and hurt their own people in the meantime? Well, here's uh, yeah, I think you put that ahead. well. Here's uh, sorry to cut you off there. But here's no, no, where ahead. here's where I struggle in this conversation. Ninety the the vast majority of people that I know. Uh, who voted for President Trump did it for great reasons. They're good people. Totally, hundred percent. Yes. Here's what I don't understand about the Russell Moores and the Beth Moores and others uh, who have been more critical is why the tent is not big enough for both. There like, you go. Yeah. Why? Why does it feel like it? It's got the litmus test is, uh, and if you fail that litmus test, then you're not in. Uh, you can't be under you're not that a faithful, tent anymore. Almost like you're not a faithful Christian. I mean, right, it right, seems right. like the conversation goes that far. Rather, I like that you said that. Why can't there be room for both? Yeah, I don't think this is a referendum on, or should be a referendum on, did you vote for Trump or didn't you? Like right. I said, I have great people that I respect greatly Same. who Same. voted for him, and yes. I have people that I respect hugely who didn't vote for yes. him. Like I yes. think what's weird, though, is that the largest... Uh, denomination in America seems to be um, 
making that line in the sand. Again, not with people, even at the top, like J.D. Greer and stuff. They seem to be fighting the good fight here. Uh, But you worry that they may not win that fight. And when you see people like Beth Moore pulling out, when you see people like Russell Moore, he is not pulled out of the Southern Baptist, but pulling out of leadership that he was in. Uh, that is worrisome for me because in the here was what I would say in our evangelical world, we need to have the ability uh, to have conversations and disagreements politically that don't make you question the faith of somebody like a Russell Moore or, or like a, a Beth, Beth Moore. Moore. I mean, these are like influential, faithful Christian people. You're right. <laughs> we we have to learn to have civil discourse and not question the other person's faith, right? Yes, yes. And now when you bring that down to the local church, we must be places at local churches that are able to go, oh, okay, you voted, say, for President Trump. Oh, you voted for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Let's I don't know how you got to that point, mm-hmm. either of you, but let's have a conversation. Yeah. Oh, you didn't vote for either of them. Can the three of us sit around a table? Yeah talk about it and, and then lo- really and love each other <laughs> yeah over and this isn't even you should still vehemently disagree you yeah. should still be passionate about it yeah but can we in our vehement disagreement go hey i love you like right. we're united under right. christ let's let's go out and get a burger or something right, right. let's right uh let's go do that i i do worry we talk so much here about polls not p-o-o not p-o-l-l-s but p-o-l-e-s right like going to the polls the churches, our churches should be the last places that go to the polls politically. Mm. But instead, the tent's got to be a little bit bigger. And and I hope that now getting out of leadership, Russell Moore is able to kind of still uh, stay a part of the denomination and and do some work. But hey, the Southern Baptist law certainly is Christianity today. Well, I feel game. like and we just gained, right? Because now he's going to be in our neck of the woods. So maybe we'll have him on the show. I'm going to guess that Russell Moore is not moving to Carroll Stream, but maybe... <laughs> Maybe. I guess that's true. Maybe he'll work remotely. I think I don't. I don't hear a lot of people know. moving from Tennessee to Illinois. I yeah, think good point. Good go point. The it's other the other way around. Uh, so anyway, politics will will be an evergreen, important conversation here on the Common Good because it is something that we just have to get right. Well, coming up next, uh, a conversation about someone that I'm not all that familiar with, but you are, Jane Goodall. Uh, and some words that that she shared at one point that I think are challenging uh, and, and I think is something worth us discussing. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Here's a name that you put out there that you were like, hey, let's talk about this, what just happened. And and that name is Jane Goodall. And I had one of those moments of going, I know the name. I have a guess, but I'm not confident that I know who it is. Then you told me who it is, and I ended up being right. I was like, okay, I did know who this person is. But for people out there who don't know who Jane Goodall is, help them understand who Jane Goodall is and why we're talking about her today. Right. Well, she's Dame Jane Goodall. Not a lot of people know that, that she was a baroness. So we actually have to call her Dame Jane Goodall. Um, You know, she was the scientist known for her work with primates. Uh, She, the movie Gorillas in the Mist was made about her. There's a documentary right now on Disney Plus on the National Geographic channel about her. And she was really the foremost expert on chimpanzees. She lived with chimpanzees for like 60 years 
in Tanzania. Um, but what I think is interesting is she just won the Templeton Prize, which is this really kind of unique prize in the sciences because it's a prize for scientific research, but also uh, when that research is connected to the deep mysteries of life. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and take a listen to a little bit of a clip of her winning the award. Jane, you were chosen as the 2021 Templeton Prize Laureate in recognition of the contributions you have made to the world's understanding of what it means to be human. So for me, what I felt in the forest was this very strong presence of a spiritual power. And it was a spiritual force that seemed to me to be in every living thing around me. And that spiritual force within is something we call a soul or a spirit. But I've always thought, well, if we have a soul and a spirit, then the other creatures do too, and the trees. I hope that we are going to learn a new relationship with the natural world, of which we are part and on which we depend for our very existence. So what I what I think I admire about Jane is that she is a scientist, right? She's dedicated her life to science, but is also willing to say there is an intelligent design behind the universe. Yes. And that the things that we see, that every single cell in our body, there's all of these billions of instructions. None of that is by chance. And none of that is acts. I mean, she says there's no way any of this could be a coincidence, that there has to be a, a creative, intelligent designer. And so, I, you know, I think this is just fascinating because sometimes we're, I don't know, afraid of science That's right. as Christians. But yep. here's a woman saying, no, there's more to science than uh, science embraces mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's when it comes to science, I'll, I'll never forget this line in it. People have heard this throughout the generations, I'm sure. But one of the great things that I heard when it comes to faith and science is that if we truly believe that all truth is God's truth, like if we truly believe that 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 the more we learn, the more it's going to point us to right. God, to a creator, then we should be embracing science. I understand that some things that are that are called science might have more of an agenda to it these days. I sure, understand sure, that. Sure. But talking just about uh, traditional science, like biology and chemistry, as we learn these types of things, astronomy, as we learn these types of things, they're actually going to point us towards God. She went on to say, there's a blurring between science and religion that's happening more and more. Scientists, in fact, are more willing to talk about it now that even scientists, but for some reason along the way, we've kind of set up this thing where science and, and God are at odds. Somehow opposed other. to each other. Right. Correct. But now you've got people like Jane Goodall, right? Saying that every single cell or, or no, but then other people like Francis Collins, mm -hmm. right? Francis Collins, for those of you who don't know him, he is brilliant, a brilliant scientist mm -hmm. whose scientific research is what led him to faith in Jesus. Right. Because he said, this can't just be chance. He says here, uh, every single cell in your body, there's a code of several billion instructions. Could that be chance? No. Hmm. And it's that kind of idea. For those of you who want to know some modern uh, connection of Francis Collins, he's actually uh, the boss of Anthony Fauci. Right? What? I didn't uh, he, know that. Oh, yeah. He's the director of the NIH. 
And so for, go read Francis Collins stuff and you'll go, okay, this is a, one of the most brilliant scientists who says not only is science and faith compatible, science actually leads us to faith. Yeah. That's the great. mystery of science, if we're honest about it, leads us to faith. But Aubrey, why do you think so many people are scared of science? Why are we scared of saying like, Hey, there's more mystery out there than we know. Uh, and, and therefore we should be running after it and embracing it. But instead, a lot of Christians that I know, uh, the very concept of mystery makes them uneasy. I'm, I don't know the answer of why we're afraid. I think maybe what you're, you kind of nodded on before is sometimes the scientific community, there are, uh, you know, areas of it that do seem to be opposed to Christian faith. Like the, we've seen a lot of scientists, um, you know, say there is no God or, mm -hmm. or, or to sort of things that we might feel controversial about like evolution, right? Like you kind of, that makes you question science. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, one, this may sound controversial, but the Bible is not a science book. It's not a science textbook. The mm -hmm. Bible teaches mm -hmm. us about the history of God's people and our saving our salvation through Jesus Christ throughout history and into the end of the time end of all time right mm -hmm. so i don't think all that to say i don't think we need to fear science if we find something that we're like wait i don't know the, how to make sense of this with the bible because i think they're totally two different texts but like you said all truth is god's truth and so this is what i think is remarkable is when we see in any of the studies whether it's science whether it's sociology whether it's i don't even art we find truths that we see in scripture. Then you go, oh, wow, the Lord is so powerful. We see him making his name and his power evident right. throughout all of these studies. Th this is what I think is really cool, ultimately, is that science can be this beautiful apologetic for the faith, right? That's when right. we think about the complex nature of creation, when we think about the fact that how is it possible that all of these elements in our planet are maintained so perfectly that humans can exist? Like, you have to go, there is a creator, there's something outside of ourselves. And so I, right. I don't think we need to, all I'm saying is, we don't need to fear science. Let's allow scientific discovery to move us to the brilliance of who God is. That's well put. I think uh, I'll close it this way. I think what gets us many people uh, worried and scared is that, like you said, we read the Bible like it is a science textbook. Well, yeah. uh, all right, let me stir the pot here. Uh, not only did God create, but it had to be in seven days and it had to be this. Yeah. And, it had to be th and then science starts going, well, this is kind of what we're finding here. Right, right. Uh, and we just get uncomfortable by that. And I think we that should help us understand also how the Bible's written and the purpose of the Bible. But but we don't need to be scared. All truth is God's truth. And if that is, in fact, true, uh, then we should be excited for discoveries. Again, and Francis Collins, I think, uh, the Human Genome Project, he led that. So... That's uh, that's where we know him from. And just a fascinating guy as well. Google Francis Collins. Well, coming up next, we're going to end our show this week, a little thing called This Week in History. We're going to talk about some of the things that happened this week many years ago. We're going to do that on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really grateful that you've joined us today on this Thursday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. 
And here's what we wanted to do, Aubrey. We wanted to end the show. So if, if people know this show, they know sometimes we end with some inspiration, some challenge, sometimes just with some fun mm-hmm. uh, or something to put a smile on your face. Today, we want to do it this way. We want to say, what are some of the things that happened throughout history uh, during this week? So what happened this week yeah. uh, throughout history? So uh, that's where we're going to go. And I would love for you to kick this off. Maybe tell us something that happened in I history. I have a really fun one. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. This one is actually from today. In the year 1873, two businessmen, who I'm not going to say their names yet, they invented something called a work pant. It was reinforced with metal rivets, and it actually marked the birth of one of the most famous garments in the world, blue jeans. Workmanship that'll never let you down. Comfort you know you can count on. And style that fits in without question. Levi's jeans. The more you think about them, the more you realize you don't have to. Blue These jeans. men were Levi Strauss and Reno Nevada invented the blue jeans. or they, they got the patent for the blue jeans today, and blue jeans were born today in history, 1873. That is a huge one. I know. Isn't so, that cool? So can I call you out on something? Did you just say Levi Strauss and another guy named Reno Nevada? Yes. That's the location where... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know what's funny about that is as I was reading it, I was going, Nevada, that's a weird last name. But I didn't put <laughs> Reno, Nevada together. That the is other funny. Man's, okay, is Jacob Davis. The other Davis man's name is Jacob, Jacob from Davis. He was Reno, a Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's definitely Thursday afternoon, isn't it? <laughs> that was awesome. I was like, did she just say <laughs> no, Levi wait, Strauss wait, and wait, wait, Reno, Nevada? Wait. <laughs> I literally said it with so much confidence, too. Like, that's his name, Reno Nevada. <laughs> oh, I had this point Brian. of going, I think I heard that correctly, but I'm going to need weird. to ask. Something's up there. That was awesome. Yeah, no, the blue jeans. If anyone knows me, they know I am a huge fan of the blue jeans. I even, within the last couple of years, began preaching in blue jeans. Aubrey oh. Sampson, are you good with somebody preaching in blue jeans? Shocking. Yes. I have no problem with people preaching in blue jeans, in shorts, in... I'm trying to think of when I have a problem with it. Ooh, I can't get myself to shorts. Yeah. Preaching in shorts feels a little informal, doesn't it? It does. It yes. does. I, this is a question I have as a woman often, though. Can I preach in blue jeans or not? So we'll have to talk about that another time. I think you can. Why wouldn't you be able to? Are they I more casual on women? I think maybe they're more casual. Maybe it depends on how you dress them up. We can move on from this conversation. Tell us something else that happened in history this week, Brian. Oh, I'm not moving on from this conversation. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Do you think that when they invented it, do you think Levi Strauss and Reno Nevada, when they were inventing the jeans, do you think... <laughs> uh, here's a debate my <laughs> wife and I regularly have. Good old not- Reno. Yep. Maybe you do this, but it's especially women, but some men, but especially women. How about the buying of jeans that are pre-ripped? Oh, that seems crazy. Is the question, do I buy them or is the question, would Levi and his friend Reno Nevada? Do you buy them or do you scoff at them? No, I definitely buy them. I want them pre-ripped. I buy both because I feel like there's an appropriate place to wear ripped jeans and an inappropriate place to wear ripped jeans. You need both in your wardrobe. But absolutely, I will pay big money for some good ripped jeans. I don't think Mr. Levi Strauss uh, would have wanted that. But I but uh, I do it. 
Okay, here's the second one, and we're going to start it with uh, a clip from the news, uh, the actual report on this day in 1927. And at 7.52, the spirit of St. Louis began to roll down the muddy runway. Would it get off the ground, or would it crash at the end of the runway? Twice its wheels left the ground, only to return. And then the plane was airborne. It was 7.54 Eastern Daylight Time, the morning of May 20th, 1927, 3,600 miles to Paris. All right. The spirit of St. Louis, right? Charles Lindbergh. Uh, can you imagine back in 1927 what a huge deal oh, amazing, it must have been? amazing, right? I, I just think it would have been just an enormous deal. People going wait, he's going to do what? And, and like, you know, you weren't, you didn't have Twitter either. And so you, you, you weren't following in real time what was going on. You probably just had bated breath. What is going to happen to Charles Lindbergh? Amazing. I just can't imagine what that was like in 1927. And this was the first ever nonstop flight across the Atlantic Ocean, right? And the first ever nonstop flight between your neck of the woods, New York, all the way to Paris. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely cool. This this week in history. OK, another thing that happened this week in history. This is see if you remember this name from class. This is way early history. 1498. Vasco da Gama. I'm sure I didn't say that right. Vasco da Gama reaches India. Do you remember no. this from your history class from world history? I, in fact, feel like that might be the first time I've ever heard that name in my life. Really? He was a Portuguese explorer. I've heard his name because I think there was some connection to him and Christopher Columbus. But he became the first European to reach India via the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. This week in history, 1498. I know. Good for him. And this day in history, we'll end with this one. Okay. uh, Because you just said his name. This day in history in 1506, Christopher Columbus... He died. Oh, he died. I thought you were going to say he sailed the ocean blue, but that wouldn't make sense in the 1500s. He landed in America in 1492. That's right. right. And so we all learned that song in in kindergarten and I can still sing it. Like I can still picture my old, uh, my old uh, kindergarten teacher. She was old. That's what I mean. And she would sit there. We had a piano in our kindergarten classroom uh, and we would sing the Christopher Columbus song. Probably only sang it once, but it just sticks in my head. So. There you go. Christopher Columbus, a pretty uh, controversial figure these days. But uh, in this day, in uh, 1506, he passed away. All right, let's close it this way. It's fun to look at things in history, but each of these has le- has a legacy. Uh, what would you say uh, for people who are looking to leave a legacy? Mm. Let's end the show this way, because these are fun. Lindbergh, yeah. Columbus. Levi uh, Strauss. Reno, Nevada. Reno, like, Nevada. We, we, they left a legacy. But some of these people, what they were done was not celebrated in their time, right? Like, uh, And so talk to us a little bit about leaving a legacy in life and how we go about doing that. I love when we talk about this topic because I feel like it's just good to be mindful of. Here's what I think is really interesting is the impact that these folks have had on future generations. And so I think it's just a good reminder. You don't know the influence that you'll have for the next generation. And really, sometimes it doesn't even matter what you do in your own generation as long as you're doing what God has called you to do. Mm -hmm. And then you allow the Lord and the spirit of the Lord to bear fruit in the next generation. And so I I think this is the call. We We keep talking about this, but 
I think it's worth keep calling people to stay faithful, pursue the path that the Lord has put you on. You do not know how it's going to influence the next generation, the next generation, and the next. I mean, here we are talking about things that happened in 1873 and 1498, you know? And so put your legacy in the Lord's hands. And he is going to do mighty, mighty things from now until into the future. Yep. That's a good word. And sometimes it means taking a risk as well. Uh, and, and where people will be like, what are you doing? And sometimes, you know, it takes kind of that big step uh, in order to do something big. But I love your call there. Like God is at work. And so we can keep going and keep remaining faithful. Well, we're really glad that you joined us today. We hope that you have a great rest of the day. Join us tomorrow on Friday. I can promise you one thing tomorrow. There's going to be a top five list. And when we do a top five list, they get a little crazy. It's always a good time. Lots of other good things tomorrow. So we hope that you will join us from four until six. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life.